0: to Twibley, or this week was way better than last year. My name is Bill with 1 L. With me, he looks at the floor and he sees that it needs sweeping.
1: That is very true.
0: It's Mr. Jeff McLaughjus.
1: That that is the story of my life right there.
0: <laughs> I am
1: like uh, Mr. Belvedere in my house with my two nearly adult children. I just I don't you even tell them anymore. I just pick them up. I just pick things. I'm like a Roomba. I just pick things up as I walk around like tell the children. <laughs> Oh, look, he left his towel on the floor again. Oh, my goodness. All the glasses in the bathroom. Oh, cheery, cheery old man who takes care of the house. That's me.
0: So uh, I had a very exciting uh, week uh, this week. Did you? Now, I had just gotten over COVID a couple of weeks ago, as we uh, have established. I remember. Two days ago, I, I wake up. You know how sometimes you wake up, you, you you know, you sit up too fast and, you know, whoa, whoa, shouldn't have done that, Did right?
1: face first out of bed onto the floor, which has been swept. Yeah, well,
0: I, I didn't make it that far. <laughs> but, but, like, I stood up. It wasn't like your typical dizziness or, oh, oh I stood up too fast, shouldn't have done that. Right. This was like a college student on a tilt-a-whirl.
1: Oh, that's why a college student. Oh, this must be a drinking reference.
0: Yes, it was. Ah, uh,
1: red solo cup. <laughs> yes, I got you.
0: Yes. And like the the whole room was tilting on a 45 degree angle and spinning. And I just like jumped what I believed to be the direction of my bed. Yes. Because I didn't want to l- land on the floor, or crack my head on anything. So I jumped back onto the bed. Yeah, dude, I woke up with absolutely the worst vertigo I've ever had in my life.
1: Oh, that sucks. Did you like yeah. look? Did you close one eye and look around and see if there was like a silhouette of Alfred Hitchcock in your room
0: somewhere? I should have closed the other eye to see if Mel Brooks was around. That's, that's actually more likely to happen. <laughs> uh, but but uh, actually, it was like really dark in my room, so it wasn't a matter of, of closing any eyes at that point. Um, so wait, well, wait, so wait, I, wait.
1: Like, wait I have to clarify things, Bill. I know that you get up where most people are still and not even quite in REM sleep yet. So it's dark in your room. I already know that because I've been to your house and your walls are painted black. How did you know that your room was giving you the roundup treatment if you couldn't see Because
0: my equilibrium was just going like, I mean, there was a little bit of light in the room, not much, you know, just, Uh, I mean, residual light from like the street lights and stuff like that. But it was spinning because my equilibrium was just like on strike. I could not maintain my balance. It settled down after a little while and I looked in the mirror, I smiled and I wasn't having a stroke. That's good news. And, I, you know, it settled down and I had my breakfast. And I was like, ooh, that was scary. And I was ready to go back, to, you know, ready to head out to work. And I was like, I'm going to lay down on the bed and see if it starts up again. And, oh, did it ever. So what had happened was I had gone swimming a couple of days before yes. and I got water in my ear. Oh, I hate when that happens. And that water... Yeah, and that water worked its way into parts of my head that it does not belong in. Yeah, ears are um, funny.
1: Yeah. Like, there's little teeny tiny spaces in there, just a little bit, can make you all squir- squirgly. It's a word I just made up so spent, for the show. Squirgly.
0: Yeah. So I spent three hours at the urgent care, and, uh, and they put me on steroids, Hulk smash, uh, <laughs> to help it drain out. I'm still a little, like, wobbly. Like, I forget about it. Like, I'll stand up, and I'm like, whoa, there we go again. It's not nearly as bad... It's more like a swing set now than it is a tilt uh, a oh, that's
1: Well, I guess that's good. It's, I still get yeah. nauseous going round and round on a swing set, like a swing set uh, roundabout thing. Well, good luck, man. Ears are no fun. Thanks. Ears are wow, no fun. Suck. So,
0: suck. Ears <laughs> are the worst.
1: Yeah, I went through the ear thing uh, back in 2019. I went full-on completely like the equivalent of as deaf as you can be in one ear. I am now deaf in that one ear. My ear is its good for holding up sunglasses and holding in the other ear, yeah. the earbud, when I'm at the gym, but it doesn't do anything else.
0: Or, yeah, it's ornamental at this
1: ornamental, point. Ornamental, yeah. It's just yeah. for show.
0: Yeah, I guess Pink Floyd albums just aren't the same anymore.
1: They are if I listen to them ambiently, because my, yeah. what your brain will do if like, it happens to you, is yeah. your brain just shuffles all the work to that ear, and then it passes it over to the part of the brain that reads the other ear. So it still sounds like it's in stereo, but in headphones, it doesn't work. So one of the reasons I like to listen to vinyl records, because I don't use headphones.
0: All right. uh, Before we get the show started, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Is it a math Uh, question, Bill? uh, No, but there are numbers involved. Oh, oh, man. Doomed. All right. Over the summer, uh, your friends and ours, uh, Boston Red Sox, hometown heroes, uh, they played a baseball game where they gave up, what was it, 28 runs?
1: Yep, 28 runs to the Toronto Blue Jays. Yeah. Um first off, not even like, another
0: not even an American team. Jeez.
1: Right. I don't I mean, I haven't followed baseball very closely in a long time, but let me say this. Good on you Toronto. That's a <laughs> game and a half right there. I don't know what your guys were doing, but they were doing it right.
0: All right. So, we're going to ask a question. That wasn't the record though. That wasn't a record in the Major League Baseball modern day, okay? The original record was set in like 1892 by teams that don't even exist anymore. Right. It was like 30, 36. Yes, the New,
1: like, the, the New Jersey clam kickers and the Philadelphia guy that's down the street with a bat.
0: Yeah, it was like the Chicago Colts or something <laughs> versus, versus the Louisville Col- uh, Colonels. The Cincinnati yeah. four guys
1: who work in a mill together.
0: <laughs> so anyway, in, the, uh, in what we now consider the Major League Baseball, MLB, what is the record for most runs set in a single game?
1: Ooh, uh... By one team. By one team. Yeah, well, yep. that makes sense. Uh, it's got to be well, like 28. So, 28. We don't, I'm we don't need the right answer now, Jeff. <laughs> I'm not. No, no,
0: I'm just thinking out loud.
1: So at the end of the show, I'll give you the wrong answer. Very
0: good. Okay, so this is the week beginning, September the 12th, and my extensive record keeping shows me it is your turn to start. Oh,
1: September the 12th, 1964. A film is released that starts an entire subgenre of film. That film is called A Fistful of Dollars. It is a Western, and I'm saying that with air quotes, directed by a guy named Sergio Leone. It stars a guy named Clint Eastwood, who had just come off of the show Rawhide, and who had had one film credit, I think, to his credit at that point. Maybe two. I don't know if he was credited in The Giant Tarantula, which came out in the 50s. Uh, He played a jet fighter pilot in that movie.
0: I got some questions. Take them. I love this film
1: to pieces, so...
0: Okay, good. Westerns are not my genre. Mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood, not my favorite actor. But I do have questions.
1: Okay.
0: This is what is colloquially known as... This is my That's my favorite word, guys. This is what is colloquially known as a spaghetti western. Correct. Now, what... Entails a spaghetti western. And also, earlier you said quote unquote western. So you're alluding to like this not being a real western. So fill in the blanks, dude. So
1: spaghetti westerns are called spaghetti westerns because they were produced, written by, directed by, and originated in with money from Italy. That's problematic. Sergio Leone is the director. It was written by another Italian guy, and Sergio Leone. The guy that does the music is Ennio Morricone. All of the actors that are not Clint Eastwood are Italians. Italian subgenre films are funny. Uh They used to be like Hercules movies or Machista movies, right? right? Strongman, Mythical Fights guys movies. They all sort of fell out of favor, and then they started to make westerns. So this is the very first one that got internationally popular, and it made all kinds of money in Europe and in the United States, spawned two sequels for a few dollars more, and The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, possibly the best Western ever made. And Anyway, and when I say that they're not real Westerns is because they're mythic Westerns. They tell tales that are not... They have a toe in the reality that they take place on Earth, but they have as much in common with a Western as Star Wars does. They are much more concerned with tone and theme and style than they are with any kind of accuracy but they're super fun to watch, uh-huh. and they they set a bunch of standards that, for entertainment and longevity purposes, can't be beat. I'd argue you can watch A Fistful of Dollars a thousand times, where you can watch, like, Stagecoach maybe 20, mm-hmm. and you'll be bored with Stagecoach, but you'll never be bored with A Fistful of Dollars.
0: Uh, yeah, and that's, like, one of those things, like, with modern movies. Like, for example, Spider-Man 3. As far as the mythos of Spider-Man goes, that is a spider-man movie in the sense that spider-man or somebody in a spider-man costume is in it but that's where the similarities ends you know yeah but that movie's fine you know it's a it's what i refer to as a popcorn cruncher it's it's made to keep you entertained it's it's not made to make you just sit there and like analyze like well they got this wrong they got that wrong it's like just sit down and watch a movie
1: Yeah, what's kind of cool about, like, the spaghetti westerns is that they incorporate a whole bunch of different uh, European people to make them. So, you'd have, like, second banana, second grade actress or actor from the United States in the lead, like, um, James Coburn or Lee Van Cleef or Clint Eastwood or whatever. And around them, you'd have, the villain would be, like, Klaus Kinski. Well, there's German money is going to making this because that's where he's from. And there'd be uh, an Israeli woman who plays, like, the love interest. She doesn't speak any English, German, Italian, or anything. She comes in because there's Israeli money that's part of the film. The same with the French actor named, like, Jean-Louis Tritignan, who's in a couple of these. Or a Portuguese guy named Terence Hill, who's in a couple of these. And all of the money from all these countries comes in and and makes the film. So they shoot it, and then they do post-production sound. in Portuguese, German, Israeli, Hebrew, uh, French... Icelandic, Ameri- English, English for England, Australian with Australian accents or whatever.
0: Yeah. And it gets released. All right. Really neat. Let's, uh, let's go on to the 13th. Uh, whew, this, here's a good this, We're going back a little ways on this one. September the, <laughs> Are we? The, uh, September the 13th, 1224. Like it was just yesterday. Uh, I remember that day. Yeah. St. Francis of Assisi is afflicted with stigmata after a vision while he was praying on Mount Verna. Now, that's praying with an A-Y, not E-Y. He wasn't stalking around the place looking for food. Right. Yep.
1: Uh, so stig- all I can say is, like, it's a miracle, Bill, yeah. that we covered this today. It's a miracle. Because Francis of Assisi is St. Francis from St. Francis of Assisi. Same guy.
0: So, yes. So, Stigmata, in addition to being a ministry song, which our friend Jeff just alluded to. Uh, <laughs> Did I? Yeah, it's, it's stronger than reason.
1: It's stronger than lies.
0: <laughs> the only truth I know, Bill,
1: is to look in your eyes.
0: So, uh, sigma is a mythological affliction where the person will receive the wounds of Jesus. So they'll their palms and their feet uh, and or will start bleeding. Whether it's true or not, I can't tell you. Except for this one time. <laughs> I was going through. uh, I was. I was in my twenties. Okay, so I was in my angry young man phase, which literally just ended a couple of weeks ago. So I was in my angry young man phase, and there was a, a bunch of things going on. I think I was having trouble with the girl of the, you know, the girl of the week kind of a thing. Yes. And I woke up one morning, and I looked at my hands, and the palms of my hands are bleeding.
1: It's a miracle.
0: And I just said, oh, great. Like, I don't have enough problems now. <laughs> stigmata. Great. Super. What had happened was, uh, because I was so wound up and all that, I was making fists in my sleep, like really tight yeah. fists, and my fingernails were digging into my palms, literally to the point where it cut my palms open and I was bleeding.
1: Uh, you know, you could have tried to, like, get out of work that day. And hey, Billy, you're coming in. I can't. I, I've got stigmata. Yeah, that's, that's terrible.
0: Yeah, it's one, that's one of those excuses you can get away with once, like my mother died. Yeah. <laughs>
1: stigmata. I have stigmata. Look, the Monsignor's coming over to look at my hands. I can't go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. He's probably gonna say I'm full of baloney, but right now I'm full of blood. It's a it's a safety issue. I can't come
0: in. It's a safety issue. All right, let's go on to the next if it's day. Catchy.
1: September 14, 1979. Theodore Coombs completes a five thousand one hundred and ninety-three mile roller skating opus from Los Angeles to New York City and back to his home in Yates Center, Kansas. Look, man, I like skating as much as the next guy, and I love skating. And if the guy next to me was me, he'd love it as much as I do. But 5,193 miles, I can only imagine how many wheels and stuff he went through. Holy mackerel.
0: That's 5,000 miles of, like, you know, paved road. That's not like roller skating rink like... uh, You know, that floor that they have in most places? Yeah, yeah, polyurethane floor. Right, exactly. It's not that. That guy's knees must just have been like, all the cartilage just must have been just completely destroyed. I wonder at what point
1: in those 5,193 miles, he was, you know, (laughs) That's the sound of the skates, right? The ball bearings. Cars whipping past him at 400
0: miles an hour. (laughs) Like, Basically ripping his clothes off, right? Right. Now. All I can think of is like, what the
1: hell am I doing this for? Yep.
0: At what mile, like four thousand five hundred? He's thinking to himself. You know what? I f- hate roller skating now. <laughs> this is bullshit. <laughs> I'm gonna buy a bicycle. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> I am so well, done with this. I am so I'm done. So done. <laughs> and again,
1: like I said, I love roller skating. I I'd go to a roller skating rink every day if I could. But man, on the street for five thousand miles. Thanks, but no thanks.
0: Right. And what year did you
1: say this was? 1979. So he was probably doing it to, like, how many times do you think he listened to Skate Away by the Dire Straits? None! Not because there was no Walkmans (laughs) at that point in time. (laughs) He must have. Yeah, I'm sure the Walkman was out before 79.
0: Yeah, maybe it was. I know we did a segment on the show before. Right, we did a thing on it. It must have been. If not, he
1: was, I'm sure Sony was like, uh, hey, uh, you know, you made it all the way to L.A., Or all the way to New York City. Here, take this for the ride back to Kansas.
0: And now he's, like, pulling out muscles in his back because his backpack is full of, like, batteries and cassette tapes, yeah. (laughs)
1: Sounds like a plastic recycling bin every time he changes direction.
0: I can't even imagine what that, like, walking must have felt like to that guy after he was done. Right? Yeah,
1: you know you get dizzy when you take off skates, right? And it feels like you're all of a sudden you're bolted to the floor.
0: That's after two hours of skating around an oval on wood. I don't know what that feeling is at all, Jeff. Not these days. Uh All right. Moving on. Skating on. Oh, skating on. Uh, we have September the 15th, 1835, uh, the HMS Beagle, with your friend of oh. mine, Charles Darwin, on board, reaches the Galapagos Islands. Uh, uh, that and, is... Yep, and uh, our friend Darwin looked around and saw all the unusual creatures and said, yep, I don't think the Garden of Eden is such a thing, really.
1: <laughs> I don't know if he saw creatures that were super unusual, aside from the tortoises. I think it was more like, wow, there's a lot of sparrows and swallows on these islands. That's weird. And then he's collecting samples. He's like, huh, this one's got a big beak. This one's got a small beak. Everything else is the same. I wonder why that is. Well, this one's from this island, and that one's from that island. Well, that's weird. And he starts on the island putting together the, the theory of natural selection.
0: I always refer to Madagascar as Darwin's waiting room because, like the way Madagascar is situated, there are animals on that island that just don't exist anywhere else because right. they kind of all evolved around each other and together. Yeah, and uh, you know, and the same can more or less be said with the Galapagos Islands, even though they're a little like further apart. Evolution works the same way no matter where you go. There's a, there's a, a thing that that or either Charles Darwin or his accolades had noticed is that anytime there's a creature, I I believe lemurs are one of the ones that do it, where they they dig into the tree to get the bugs out of the tree, and that's how they, you know, that's what they eat and survive. Whenever those animals exist, there's never any woodpeckers, because there's literally not enough, like, food to support both of them. Right. So, yeah, you're either going to have one or the other. You'll never have both.
1: This is a considerably larger conversation than yeah. than an episode of Twibbly, though. You should tune into our other podcast, Jeff and Bill Discuss Evolution, indefinitely.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Coming soon on your local podcaster. All right, let's get on to something sillier then. So, September 16th.
1: All right, September 16th, 1968. Candidate for president for the Republican Party, Richard Nixon, appears on Ronan Martin's laughing and says, key phrase, sock it to me. This, surprisingly enough, breaks enough ice around Nixon, and he's able to destroy George McGovern in the upcoming election and become president of the the United States. Nixon, in and of itself, had his own problems with the media. He was a terrible media personality, Mm -hmm. previous to saying, sock it to me, on what was the young person's show of note in 1968.
0: Right, yeah, Nixon had, like, zero charisma.
1: Yeah, he had as much charisma as a half-empty mayonnaise jar.
0: (laughs) You know, that's like a famous bit, but that's also like before our time. I remember uh, your friend of mine, Bill Clinton, appearing on the Arsenio Hall Show, which was also a young person show. He put on his uh, Ray-Ban sunglasses and he played the saxophone with the band, endearing him to the younger audience. A couple of years later, uh, they tried it again whenever uh, Massachusetts Senator John Kerry was running for president. John Kerry was not nearly as cool as Bill Clinton. John Kerry was Or Richard Nixon. I was about to Look, say. Man. John, John Kerry was almost as cool as Richard Nixon. Not much. If yeah. Richard
1: if if Richard Nixon's charisma could be described as a half empty mayonnaise jar, John Kerry's is a three quarters empty mayonnaise yeah, jar. He's the, he other is, ha- he's, the he's the other half, he's, he's, the other half of
0: the mayonnaise oh, jar. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. So he he went on I don't even remember what show it was. I think it was um I think it was the Tonight show with Jay Leno. Noted teenage Heartthrob Jay Leno, <laughs> um, but he went on and he would, like he rode his Harley Davidson onto the stage to show off, like what a you know a cool guy he was. I guess that didn't work because I had to sit there and really think about what his name was. Yeah, John Kerry. Right. <laughs>
1: I think the yeah I think the worst part of that interview too was when it sounded like a guy from Southie was having a conversation with a guy from like Back Bay yes it was the most Massachusetts thing that's ever been on television that didn't involve an actual Kennedy
0: and then Jay little says hey John why the long face <laughs> the <a> long face <laughs> uh,
1: and Carrie said oh you got that on the chin
0: <laughs> all right moving on all right so September 17th 1967. Your friend of mine, Jim Morrison and The Doors, appear on The Ed Sullivan Show. Now, in 1967, Ed Sullivan, you, that was it. They, they, you either made it or you were broken by it, you know? That was the place to be. There was only three channels at that point. <laughs> so uh, Ed Sullivan's censors had requested that whenever The Doors played their hit song, Light My Fire, they changed the lyrics from Girl We Couldn't Get Much Higher to Girl We Couldn't Get Much Better. Which doesn't rhyme? Yeah, that almost rhymes. Yeah, this doesn't rhyme <laughs> with anything. Yeah, <laughs> you know, because girl, we couldn't get much higher. You know, kind of sounds like drugs, and it was the sixties. You know, so the band was like, yeah, yeah, sure, we'll we'll do that. And then they played the song, and they said higher anyway because f- the police. And <laughs> yeah, then Ed Sullivan was like, you know, banned them, like they're never going to be on the show again. To which your friend of mine, John Morrison, replied, Hey, man, we just did the Ed Sullivan show. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, like, not a huge Doors fan, but I can appreciate the, the act of, like, sticking your middle finger up on national television and yes. being, you know, being true to yourself and true to your art and all that. I mean, it worked out well for Jim Morrison. How many more months did he go before he dropped dead? I
0: don't know. I think it was, like, two years, maybe.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a couple of years. But, you know, I think that that's cool. Like, the Stones changed their lyrics to for Let's Spend Some Time Together, yes. which... They sh- probably shouldn't have done. But, uh, you know, I don't know, man. If I was like a 22-year-old and was like, I'm going to be on the Ed Sullivan show. And yeah. they said, Jeff, you know, you have to change the name of your song from, you know, let's dry hump a pit bull to, <laughs> you know, let's buy some popcorn. I'd be like, you know what? I'm still going to be on the show, right?
0: <laughs> let's, and, let's go down to the farmer's market and support the local community. Yes, exactly. I'm all. I'm all in. Can I be on the show again? I'll. I'll just throw this out there. Like I'm not a big Doors fan myself either. I'm like one of those. I'll listen to the greatest hits and fast forward through a couple of songs. But that move right there is as punk rock as just about anything the Sex Pistols ever did. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. That's set the tone. That was rock and roll becoming rebellious again. Yeah. Uh, in a way that was challenging and not just like summer of lovey. Yes, you know what I mean. Yeah, it was yeah. aggressive. So yeah, props to the Doors for that.
0: All right, and let's wrap up the week. September eighteenth,
1: seventeen sixty nine. So we're we're talking hundred years, two hundred years before Jim Morrison.
0: Yep.
1: A guy named John Harris of Boston, yeah. Massachusetts builds the very first spinet piano. And I know you're gonna say, I don't know what a spinet piano
0: is. Jeff, I don't know what a spinet piano is. Actually, I do now because I had time to Google said spinet piano and okay. I know what it looks like but describe it for the listeners.
1: A spinning piano is the idea is that it takes the canicles of like a grand piano and it puts them upright and makes them smaller and makes it so that you can fit the sound of a grand piano into a house, small house. Right. You don't need a stage and you don't need an auditorium to house the thing. And they were stupendously popular because they were relatively inexpensive. They were relatively small, and like when you say relatively small piano, mm-hmm. it's like, hey, I need to move the piano to another room. How many people want to come over for pizza and beer to help? Because I need all of them. They're right, not right, like right, right. and and it's a giant cast iron bow that's inside a piano. That's what makes it so heavy. Right. Even and the
0: even the upright pianos, you know, still have that big bow in, in inside like that. Where the yeah. spinets were a little, yeah, they're a little different and mu- and much more portable uh the only problem was they are impossible to keep in tune yeah they don't
1: stay in tune it's if you want to have some fun and you find yourself bored out of your gourd on a saturday afternoon go to like facebook marketplace or ebay type in free pianos near me 90 percent of those pianos are going to be spin it pianos and it's going to say beautiful because it always starts with beautiful antique or vintage that's always the next thing spin it piano out of tune (laughs) <laughs> or needs tuning,
0: yep. um, and at that and, point you're gonna everyone. need like almost like Alice from the Brady Bunch was like the live-in maid. You're gonna have to like have like a live-in piano tuner, Pierre. You know, come <laughs> come tune right. the yeah. piano again.
1: Right. Oh my God. I played chopsticks and now it's ding, ding, ding ding ding. Oh, here we go. It's like owning a Volkswagen with a $500 light on the dashboard. Yep. Every time you play something, you got to pay the piano tuner guy to come fix it. Yep. When I was looking for a piano for my daughter, when she was actively playing, uh, when she was like a tween, I went looking online for a free piano because people give those things away all the time. Because one, nobody plays them really. And two, they take up a ton of space. And Almost everything I saw were spinet pianos that were available. And and what I decided to do was buy her a keyboard. (laughs) If you need to buy a a piano for your kid because they're starting to take piano lessons, do yourself a favor. Go buy an electric piano. Go buy a keyboard. They're like 200 bucks, And you can move them by yourself. And they sound
0: just fine. Hey, you know who plays the electric piano? Celebrity birthday time. Uh, <laughs> September the 12th, 1966 Lead singer and piano player For the Ben Folds 5 Ben Folds Oh, hey, I like
1: Ben Folds I he's, do too uh,
0: One, he's a mother of yeah. a piano player Yeah, he's, yeah, Like he's one of those that's like really just Like he's so good he's fun to watch Play, yep. you know He's got a lot of humor to his songs Like uh, the song called uh, Song for the Dumped yeah, the uh, the chorus is give me my money back, you bitch, <laughs> you know? Yeah, his, a lot of his songs are very, they're clever but funny and all that. But then he could turn around and have a song like on the same album, Brick, which is dead serious and beautiful.
1: Right, right. I have a couple of his records downstairs. The one, I think, the one's rocking, the, I can't remember the titles because I listen to him on my phone. Yeah. And I just go, Ben Folds, and it starts to play. But I have a Greatest Hits record and I have the one with Rockin' the Suburbs on it. I think, this, I think the
0: album is the same title.
1: Is Rock in the Suburbs, yeah, so that one.
0: There are a few songs out there that I consider to be perfect songs, and when I say that is I can listen to them on a loop like 10, 15, 20 times in a row and not get sick of it. Mm -hmm. And the song Army by Ben Folds is one of those songs. I think that song is just phenomenal from top top to bottom.
1: Yeah, great song. I like Annie Waits. Again, I like everything on that record, so awesome dude. All
0: right, next up. Uh, September
1: thirteenth, nineteen thirty-seven. Animator Don Bluth, who worked for a while for Disney, was an animation supervisor. Yep. And then after the, I don't know if it was like a big purge, but they there was this, all this kerfuffle around the time that the uh, the Rescuers came out, and he's like, screw you, I'm out of here. Yep. And he split to start his own studio. He's probably best known now for two video games. That came out, at least for our generation, two video games that came out when we were in our teen years. Yep. One called Space Ace, yes. which used amazing CD technology to work, where you maneuvered by moving a joystick or tapping buttons the tracks on a CD and it would show a part of a film. Uh, that you were effectively it, moving a character.
0: Here's where I come in with my well, actually. Uh, oh, at okay, at that point, it's going to be laser discs, it's not going to be CDs. Yeah.
1: It's a LaserDisc. Yeah, and yes. the,
0: the predecessor to that was uh, also uh, animated by Don Bluth called uh, Dragon's Slayer. Yes. And I have finished Space Ace, but I have never successfully finished Dragon's Slayer. Even with the at-home versions where I could do it, you know, without having to pump 50 cents into it every time I want to play. Right. Um, yeah, even with that, I have never finished it. I don't know how people got to the point where they could finish that game. It's it, That those games are
1: merciless. Yeah. I, I like I never got more than two, 30 seconds into either of them. <laughs> they are punishing. Punishingly difficult. Yeah,
0: they're money uh, to the money point where they're suffers, not even yeah.
1: to the point where they're not fun. <laughs> so, but I, I mean Blue Studio went on to make things like an American Tale, Secret of Nim too, and some other stuff. They did a science fiction movie like 1999 or 2000 that had Matt Damon do a voice that destroyed the studio cuz it cost a lot of money and didn't make any money back. <laughs> Like, he was in a foundational part of American animation for 30 years almost.
0: Right. That wasn't Disney. Right, right, right.
1: Providing the alternative to Disney and making more adult animated fare.
0: All right. Next up, September the 14th, 1959. A woman who really considerably should be more famous than what she is. Her name is Mary Crosby, and she will go down in history as the person who shot J.R., on the biggest cliffhanger of all time uh, on the TV show, Dallas.
1: Yes, and for those of us who were too young to watch Dallas or care about Who Shot J.R., she was also in Ice Pirates, which I watched approximately 4,526 times on a rented VHS tape.
0: Oh, I watched it because it was on HBO all the time. Mary Crosby, like I said, she should have been a little bit more famous than what she was. She was a beautiful girl. And, um, yeah, I don't know. She just never really caught on, I guess. She's the daughter of Bing Crosby, so that <laughs> don't, means... Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> All right, so uh, moving on to the 15th.
1: September 15th, 1907, the first movie star woman that I'd ever saw on a film and instantly fell in love with was Fay Rey, who was the female star, technically, of King Kong. I have never seen her in anything else. But Fay Rey played the beautiful... Uh, Love interest of a giant stop motion gorilla. Beauty killed that beast, and was absolutely captivating when I was a wee child. And as we've said on this show before, that movie holds up, and so does her performance. She puts a lot of like pathos and energy into being effectively King Kong's girlfriend.
0: Yeah, I'm over here. I'm looking up um, to see if she did any other anything else besides King Kong, and she did a couple of like that era of horror movies. So she did a movie called Dr. X in 1932 and The Mystery of the Wax Museum in 1933. And she was also in the RKO version of The Most Dangerous Game. Yeah, I've never seen
1: that. I think most of those were before Kong too. I know Most Dangerous Game I think was 32.
0: Yeah. Wow. I I'm, was I'm scrolling down her Wikipedia page it says partial filmography and it literally fills up an entire page three columns. Oh. Uh, like, uh, the last movie that she made, apparently, was in 1980.
1: Wow! Oh, wow.
0: Yeah, Gideon's Trumpet.
1: Yeah, it rolls right off the tongue, that one. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. See it all, twice. All of these movies could be found on those, like, 50 horror movies that you can get in, like, one pack. Because they're all public <laughs> <Yeah>. domain.
1: <laughs> it's on one DVD, and they all look like they were transferred off of a Nintendo Game Boy.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah all right. Of those. So, moving on to the 16th. September 16th, 1948, the second drummer for The Who, taking the place of Keith Moon after his death, a man by the name of Kenny Jones.
1: Yeah, also the drummer before that for The Small Faces, where uh, Rod Stewart
0: kind of came from. Yeah. I read Pete Townsend's autobiography, Mm -hmm. and he was talking about how Kenny Jones, side by side with Keith Moon, seems like a very tame drummer. He says he was so much better to play with than Keith Moon because Kenny Jones kept a beat. Yeah, he could keep time. Yeah.
1: He wasn't playing, he wasn't like he was playing lead. Right. Which is how they described Keith Moon, yeah.
0: Yeah, the way uh, the way Pete Townsend described it, he goes, all these years playing with Keith Moon, Keith was following us. He goes, and now we're following the drummer. You know, like the way a band is supposed to play.
1: <laughs> you know, and for those of you out there already ripping your hair out, Thinking about face dances and it's hard. hard. Like, I think those are, as I've matured as a music listener, those are the two records that I go back to, not most often, but way more often than like Odds and Sods or Who's Next or The Who by Numbers. Like, I think they're just better records. Uh, And part of it is that the drumming is better
0: too. Well, and a lot of part of it too is the production. The production on any Who album didn't really sound great until Quadrophenia. Yeah, uh, all their early albums sound like they're being played through a, a, a Coca-Cola can. All
1: right, moving on. September seventeenth, nineteen forty-eight. Actor John Ritter, who's probably best known, at least on this podcast, for his role on Three's Company.
0: <laughs> I was waiting. You're like probably best known for this obscure. <laughs> 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 no, I probably, wasn't gonna. Do, I thought about doing it. Yeah, probably best known for uh, Problem shock. Hero child. at Large. Yeah, yeah. Hero at large. First. The first movie he made, uh, Hero at Large. No, probably best known um, for Three's Company, playing Jack Tripper. Yes, he was
1: also on you know more recent stuff like Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Daughter. Yeah, thank God I got it right that
0: time. Right, which uh, with the after he passed away, they continued with the show and just dropped the title to Eight Simple Rules. Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter. Right, which uh, yeah, it's it's a little uh, a little long in the mouth, so to speak. Right. He was you know greatly successful on three's company. The spin-off, Three's a crowd, did not really work out. He's done a lot of movies, but yeah. he he never really made it as a movie star. You would think I think the closest he got to that was he did that run of
1: pictures called Problem Child. You remember that? Yeah. He was the father in that. Right. He was effectively the main character that wasn't the obnoxious child. Right he was the straight man to that kid yeah,
0: he's but a, those he's good in those films yeah right and he did like a lot of movies you know he uh, he was in it the the 1990 tv series yeah that's right uh, yeah bad santa he had another movie called stay tuned and probably his most like prestige picture was he was in sling blade yeah but like he never really made that huge jump you know true to the silver screen which is too bad because the guy was fantastically hilarious and he was taken from us way, way, way too soon. Yes. All right. And wrapping up the birthdays, Annette Funicello's perpetual boyfriend, uh, <laughs> born in 1940, Frankie Avalon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All of yeah. those, all of those like beach blanket bingo and those kind of like surf movies from the, the 50s and all that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that was all Frankie Avalon. Those are fun movies.
1: I'm not going to lie. Yep. I watched a bunch of those when I was like a little kid. They used to be on before the Creature Double Feature show. Remember Creature Double Feature? Absolutely. In the summertime, they would sometimes show those. And my mom had seen them all in the cinema. So if they came around like Beach Blanket, How to String a Wild Bikini or whatever, she'd be like, oh, there's a great one on. And we would sit and watch these ridiculous surf movies. They were so
0: fun. Yep. In the mid to late 80s, they came out with a movie called Back to the Beach. <laughs> Which is like a, just an ensemble. I mean, it, you name the stars of the day and they're all in that movie. But it right. starred Frankie Avalon and Annette It's It did, yeah. yeah. Recreating that that kind of magic that they had back in the 50s making these surf movies.
1: And they, they had a bunch of giggles at themselves too. There was a bunch of self-deprecating humor in that.
0: Yes, it was very oh. self-aware, yeah.
1: It was very self-aware, very meta, as yeah. they say. Uh, so, again, you may not know half the characters if you go watch it now, mm-hmm. if you're if you're younger than Bill and I. But this, the movie is really funny.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Uh, Fishbone, Fishbone, yeah. one of my, one of my favorite. Uh, I don't even know how to describe them, like funky punky kind of bands. Yeah. Uh, they're in that movie uh, doing, well, not their best song, but it's not. Worst song ever. All right, Jeff. Last week, we were talking about sad girl music and sad boy music, the Britpop yes. kind of a thing.
1: I remember. Yeah. Yes, I was. it made me sad for a whole day
0: afterwards. <laughs> now, whenever the sad boy music was going down uh, in the 90s, running uh, parallel lines with sad boys were angry girls. I remember. Yeah. And this week's uh, feature on the Worst Song Ever is a song called Mother Mother by Tracy Bonham. Let's play the clip and then begin the dissection. Life is perfect, never better. Distance making the heart grow above. That, <laughs> that that bit right there yeah. is the entire song. Yeah, that hot. is the that that song is so gimmicky, and that's it right there. Only that's a selling point. It's it's and this the, at, this
1: song would have been would have been probably in super-duper heavy rotation on the radio station that I used to listen to here in 1996. Mm-hmm. I listened to WFNX from Boston. It was on all the time. Yep. Tracy Bonham yeah. is from Boston. Yes. She's born in Boston, moved to California, came back to Berkeley, School of Music, started her career in Boston, recorded her first record in Boston. Boston, 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 Boston. So she would have been all over Boston radio. Right. And when you suggested that we do this song, I thought to myself, I have no idea. <laughs> what song this is. And then I listened to it and I thought, Oh, I have no idea what song this is. Even after and listening was, to it? Really? And after listening to it, I'm like, I've never heard this song before. And I know I would have after I read about where she's from. Yeah. And it's one of those, my brain must've done the, yeah, we're just going to not going to record for <laughs> this three minutes and 45 seconds. Cause you'll never need to think about this person again. So I never did, but she totally falls into like that same that same sort of cereal bowl of angry girls like Courtney Love and Hole. Right. Although a little bit later. Meredith
0: uh, Brooks. Alanis Morissette, yeah.
1: Alanis Morissette. PJ Harvey. Although that's just, a little bit earlier too. You, but, you can just see yeah, like one of
0: those late night commercials. Those late night commercials like with the compilation CDs. Act now and you can get <laughs> girls that swear. <laughs> hey,
1: have you not been yelled at by a woman you love lately?
0: <laughs> What bugs me about this song is like at the beginning the guitar is being played and it really sounds like somebody who just learned to play the guitar like two months ago and is giving it a whirl over an open mic night. Mm-hmm. But then I read on a wiki page and she's like a classically trained, I'm read, right? I'm reading this straight out. Classically trained pianist and violin player, right? Player, And I was like, really? And then it says, and self-taught guitar player. I'm like, that explains everything. Because it's just like, just this like junk, 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 just like downstroke, like.
1: There's a couple of other like songs that came off of that first record where she leans heavier into the violin side and has other people who play the other instruments that are like the one I think is the one that I, I know the best.
0: I listened to that song, The One, and I'll tell you, the chorus is super catchy and well done. The verse, you can tell she's a violin player because she sings like a violin. Her voice just, like, cuts through everything. Like, all right, lady, all right.
1: It's definitely an acquired taste, and it isn't one that I ever acquired. But then for that whole, like, subgenre of sort of angry woman music, I realize I'm not the audience for that. Right. That they're not, they don't speak to me, like, the same way they speak to, like, my, my daughter or at the time contemporary, like, to my wife or whatever. Yeah. And I was surprised that her, her career was so short until I read and understood why. She had the sort of bad luck to be on Island Records. Right. And right at the time where Island Records got bought by Seagrams along with all these other labels into the Universal Music Group. Yep. And Seagrams, for those of you who don't know, is an alcohol company.
0: Yes. They, they are is. not a
1: music company. also
0: A lot of children lose their alcoholic virginity. Well, in our age group, anyway. A lot a lot of a lot of children in our age group lost their alcoholic virginity to C Group seven, yeah.
1: It's probably true, yes, because it was it's it had a brand and it didn't have a skull and crossbones on the label.
0: <laughs> Everybody's parents had it in the house for some reason. And,
1: but they basically shuddered. They're like, eh, she had a whole new record ready to come out and they were like, eh, you know what? Eh, we're gonna go in a different direction. We're gonna put out and other things that are less angry girl stuff. And it, the record sat around for like four years. And then they finally popped it out and it flopped and they were like, yep, see ya, good luck with that.
0: Yeah, because everybody had forgotten about her. Um, and like I said right at the, beginning, at the very beginning of the segment, is this song is gimmicky. Yeah. And I've I've brought up this point before with other songs, is like any song that mentions being able to fly people will always love that they would be like wait i i want to fly
1: they feel like <laughs> you know they feel like there's can- a wish fulfillment that phraseology has
0: yeah but like you know they they feel like they connect with it so here we are in you know the early to mid late 90s here's this angry song where the girl's like it sounds like she's lyrically it sounds like she's on the phone with her mom obviously very angry with her mother and Teenage girls and the demographic of 14 to 24, they're all like, Hey, I'm angry at my mother sometimes too. I relate to this. Right? So then they go out and they buy the album and Mother Mother, guess what? First song. And then the rest of the album has songs like Sharks Can't Sleep.
1: Yeah, that song is okay-ish.
0: That song is not okay. That song... (laughs) That song says things are okay a hundred gazillion billion times throughout the lyrics.
1: Look, I added an ish on the end. That's as far as I'm going to go with that <laughs> song. The song has like a funny message to it. And again, and going back and listening to it for the first time, apparently, and then reading the lyrics, apparently, again, for the first time. Mm-hmm. The story is like a girl calling her mom. The girl herself is having a r- r- rampagingly bad life, but she tells her mom everything's hunky-dory, right? Even though her mom told her that she was going to have a rampagingly bad life because she's made some incredibly stupid decisions at some point before the song was written. Okay, so, oh, I'm sorry, what's the central message here? Yeah. Like, my mom was right, you know what? <laughs>
0: yeah. I should have listened. The central message is, Sarah <laughs> And know And the worst part about it is, the worst part of all of this, and I think it's what actually triggered me with this song, is in the music video, Whenever she does the, I'm not going to do it again, but the scream of everything's fine. She like sheepishly puts her hand over her mouth like, oops, oops, I, I said that really loud, didn't I? Like, oh my God. It's like, uh, I, like I said, it's just, it's so gimmicky that I can't, I, I must have said that five times already, but it's, there's nothing else to say about this song. If
1: you are a casual listener... As I am to sort of this to sort of music, and you did like the Pepsi Challenge with me, and threw a blindfold on and and a headphone with one side working, the side that my ear works on, and made me listen to Alanis Morissette, who I have almost no experience listening to, and Tracy Bonham, and probably even a little bit of of Hole or PJ Harvey.
0: I would be hard pressed
1: to tell one from the other.
0: I am quite sure. That there are 40 something year old women just jumping through the podcast trying to throttle you right now for besmirching the good name of Milanus Hootyfish or whatever her name was. <laughs> Thank you, Jellaby Um, But, you know, for besmirching the good name of Milanus Morissette. But no, you're kind of right where that, like I said before, the angry woman genre that was popular in the early to mid late 90s. Short-lived, but there was a lot of punch in there for the, for the time being.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it, it definitely hit above its weight. There
0: you go. All right. So before... No, yeah, because I was making fun of you. <laughs> I know you are. Uh, All right. So before we wrap up the show proper, I do have the answer to our very popular and always well-received trivia question. So in the modern day of the of Major League Baseball, what is the record for most runs set by a single team? In a single game.
1: That, and we've already established that it's not the Toronto Blue Jays absolutely going house on the Red Sox like two weeks ago at 28 runs.
0: Uh, it's probably closer to eight weeks ago. Let's not uh, destroy oh, all the right. evolution. Yeah,
1: that's right. <laughs> eight weeks ago. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yes, because we certainly aren't record these in such a timely manner. Um, yeah. Just by virtue of how long a baseball game is, and we've never run across this in one of the stories about baseball games that last like 27 innings. Because they couldn't last twenty-seven innings if there was a giant blowout on one side of the scoreboard. I'm gonna say thirty. Thirty round number. That's on the, the number. The total. Freaking
0: number. button, dude. Is it really? Oh my gosh! Yeah. Hey, look at that. The modern day record is thirty, set on August twenty-second, two thousand and seven, by the Texas Rangers against the Baltimore Orioles. Oh.
1: Yep. Wow. Look at that. All right. Well. Thirty, 30
0: on. Bad. I got one. That's... Wow. One in a row, as far as that, or was it two in a row? I don't remember. I don't know. We'll know. I don't think of you. Okay. As long as I got one. All right. All right. So that's going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff.
1: Good night, Jeff. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. A special shout out to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you for listening to Twibbly, Or this week was way better last year. You know, you can find us or message us over at Facebook or Instagram. Just look for Twibbly. That's T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. And don't forget to subscribe. You may just find out your favorite song is the worst song ever.